I want to make sure this gets recorded. This is an announcement part. Good morning, everybody. Telling you what, for people who look like you look, you look okay. <laughs> Thinking about running for office, so anyway. So I want to give you a quick announcement. Uh, Pray 2018 starts Friday night. So let me clear it up. There's been a little bit of confusion. We like to do that just to generate excitement. If you make things confusing, people get excited. And even bad press is good in some ways. You can ask a lot of folks that, but I won't make any political statements. So starting Friday night at 630, it's going to be in the card room, which is on the other side of the restrooms. Pastor Dave Lemmer, who pastored and founded the Restoration Church in Casper, is going to be with us. He's going to be teaching us Friday night at 630. Everybody say Friday. Friday. 6.30 p.m. Not a.m. That was a mistake. Anyway, so Friday, 6.30 p.m., uh, we'll be in the card room, and he's going to be teaching us about prayer. How, and they call it in their church, they call it healing prayer. But it's a way uh, to help each other encounter Holy Spirit and to just pray for people and together. It's going to be very powerful and very helpful to all of us. So we're going to do that Friday night, 6.30. Saturday morning. Say Saturday morning. Saturday morning. I, I don't feel as much confidence about Saturday. Friday was feeling good, but Saturday not so much. So Saturday, say it again, Saturday, 10 a.m. 10 a.m., okay? That'll be part two. Part one, Friday night. Part two, Saturday morning. Then Saturday night at 6.30 p.m. again, we're going to be in this room next Saturday night. We're going to worship. We're going to pray and uh, put into practice what we learned, okay? Got it? That's Pray 2018. That's the schedule and how it works. I'd love to see you here. I know it will encourage you. My motivation in having Pastor Lemmer here is because I'm asking God for awakening, spiritual awakening in our community. And so that's what we're about, okay? Awesome. So let's get into it. We're going to have some fun today. We've got some serious fun. We're going to talk about repentance. Notice I didn't put that anywhere because I didn't think anybody would like, hey, all right, we're going to talk about repentance. Sign me up. I didn't think that at all. But... I think it's very powerful what we're going to cover today, and I think it will really give you, no, I don't think, I know repentance is a powerful thing to set us free. So to introduce it, I want to start and talk a little bit about the first great awakening, and you're probably thinking to yourself, uh, what? Anyway, so <laughs> you guys have probably heard the story of uh, you know Thanksgiving and the pilgrims and all of that, and so as we come into Thanksgiving in another month, um, you'll remember those things. But those pilgrims that came in, they were Puritans. Okay? They were leaving Europe and all the persecution that they were enduring to have freedom in their faith, to exercise a, a, a more genuine and what they felt a more legitimate faith. And so they came to America, and they were Puritans, and the Puritan really kind of captures what they were about. They wanted to live a pure and holy and righteous life, and so they, they shed Europe, they left it in the dust, they came to America to start a new life, and to follow God in freedom. And they paid a heavy price for that. But when they came, they brought a high value and standard. Well, then they had children. And as it goes between one generation to the next, standards tend to step down. And by the time you get to the 1700s, the world and the colonies, the North America, the part that we knew about at the time, had become not so great a place. So serious about it, so serious that the... the um, the Puritans that were left, the faith that was left, met together to really try and address 
the problems which they felt were pride, uh, lack of church connection, community. There were issues with drunkenness and lack of concern for others. And they decided that they needed renewal. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I want to introduce you some people, two predecessors and then three other guys. And I could talk about a lot of other people, but I'm not going to bore you with too long of a history lesson, okay? I get really excited about this stuff, though, so bear with me, because when I look at the Reformation, which we looked at last week and talked about the power of the Bible, and I saw some, you see some things happen in the Reformation that get uh, reawakened and then maybe even corrected with each coming awakening, when we came out of the Reformation, the Reformers were leaving the Catholic Church, and they were trying to have a Bible-founded life. The issue was that the Catholic Church that they were coming out of at the time, did not they accepted the authority of the Church over the Bible, which the Reformers had a great issue with. But in doing that, they would also claim, and this was kind of where the Reformers went too far, they would claim, the Catholic Church was claiming the miracles and the things that were happening in their body as proof that their theology was correct. And the Reformers rejected that in an effort to try and, and establish and stabilize their movement. And so what happened was there was this move away from any active work of the Holy Spirit. So you, uh, that, that happened in the Protestant churches. And you, you know, I was raised in a church that didn't, that didn't believe they were Protestants. But if you're not Catholics, you're probably Protestants, so just kind of deal with it, okay? Um, not trying to offend you, but like, get over it. It happened 500 years ago. We're good, okay? But anyway, so a couple of things. So this guy named Solomon Stoddard, he was Jonathan Edwards' grandpa. He was one of the first guys uh, in American soil to stand up and teach each Sunday and say, hey, everybody, we need to take communion together. Now, I know you're sitting there thinking nowadays that's no big deal, right? He got fired for it, okay? And his influence obviously impacted his grandson named Jonathan. Another guy I want to talk about, just real briefly, is the... <clears throat> Theodore, I don't know, I, I should have talked to Bruce before this, because these German names, man. Freiling Heisen, I think is how you say it. Is that close? Is that the UI gets you an I sound? Okay, UI. Thanks, Bruce. I meant to ask you before church, and I missed you. Anyway, <clears throat> so Theodore's German, and uh, he taught that people should actually get this revolutionary concept, know God. Did not set well. Because at that time, people were like, hey, man, I'm a member of a church. That's all I need, church membership. And so here's a guy saying, no, that isn't going to cut it. You need to actually know God. Profound thought. So that brings us to our next character who's really important, Jonathan Edwards. Now, if you've heard, have you heard of Jonathan Edwards? Give me a nod if you've ever heard of the name Jonathan Edwards. You would not have liked him. You really would not have liked Jonathan Edwards, okay? He was really uptight, Okay. But he was really smart. He knew Latin at six years of age. He went to Yale at 13 and graduated top of his class at age 17 from Yale. Incredibly smart. Uh, but not in, emotionally intelligent. <clears throat> He's, he spent like 13 hours a day in his study. His parish complained because he didn't visit people. When he preached, he literally read the sermon, monotone voice, his, but his sermons were so anointed with the Holy Spirit, people would cry and wail, and he would tell them to be quiet. <laughs> yeah, for real. Crazy. But, but I love how God used 
Jonathan Edwards, because of the things that happened in his ministry really helped restore a part of church history that had been lost, and that was the presence of the Holy Spirit and the miraculous side, which is crazy because Edwards was one of the most Calvinistic dudes that, that walked the earth, man. Most Calvinists today rest their theology on much of Edwards' work. And so you had Jonathan Edwards, and he was just you know, amazing, but you wouldn't have liked him, okay? Can you accept that? Two more guys I gotta mention real quick. And that, oh no, I'm sorry, three more guys. <sighs> I forgot my own notes. John, George Whitfield, George Whitfield was awesome. Um, he was raised in a, in a bar, literally raised in a bar. Dad died when he was two. Got a chance to go to Oxford when he came of age, and that's where he met the Wesleys. Joined their holiness club. Came to America in, uh, when he was 26 years of age. I knew that was gonna trip eventually. Whitfield, okay, so just before Whitfield came to America, Jonathan Wesley, I mean not Jonathan Wesley, John Wesley spent some time in America. This was John Wesley's time in America before Whitfield was before he had had an encounter with God. He was a religious man, but he was not necessarily a spiritual man. And so when he was in America, Wesley was a very law-based preacher, man. He nailed him to the wall with the law. And then Whitfield came. And Whitfield preached grace. He got thrown out of the churches, which was good, because he went to the open fields, and people would come to hear him in the fields. He could preach without any amplified assistance to crowds of 20 or 30,000 people, and they would hear him all around. Benjamin Franklin was friends with Whitfield, Went to one of his meetings, and when he went, he said, I'll go, but I'm not giving any money. Before he left, he had taken every coin in his pocket and given it in the offering. <laughs> so, Whitfield was amazing. And it's funny how God, or it's cool how God, took a, a Wesley who wasn't ready for the awakening, although he would be a big part of it in Europe, brought in a Whitfield to drive home the doctrines of grace, and then brought Wesley back to found the Methodist faith, which America was primed for at the time because the faiths in America were coming from Europe, the Anglicans and the Catholics, and those stubborn redneck folks were tired of the old religions, and so here comes Wesley with Methodism, which was basically teaching people the Bible systematically. Just so, I mean, God, God knows how to do stuff. So, and just real quick, you got John and Charles Wesley, and their main work was in England, but their impact on America can never be dismissed. Now, I wanted to bring this up today, this brief bit of church history, and I want to share with you what came out of this, what happened and came out of this first great awakening. And it was primarily a move of God in the area of repentance. So many people were saved. About 7% of the population in the colonies came to faith, which was, uh, oh man, what was that? It was like 70,000 people. I can't remember. I have it somewhere. Oh, 25 to 50,000 people came to faith in just a few years. So many people came to faith. Bars closed. Taverns had to shut their doors. Things just changed. But what happened was people were awakened to God. And I want to read you an account by Jonathan Edwards that gets expunged from the historical record by a lot of his followers today. 
This is Jonathan Edwards' words. He says about one of his meetings, or many of his meetings, he says, It was common to see outcries, faintings, convulsions with distress and joy. Some were so affected that their bodies were overcome. So they stayed all night in the church. There were some instances of persons lying in a sort of trance, remaining for perhaps a whole 24 hours, motionless, with their senses locked up, but in the meantime, under strong imagination, as though they went to heaven and had there a vision of glorious and delightful objects. Edward's words, it's not me writing. The problem is I grew up a Southern Baptist, and that account wasn't in any of the historical books I read. And I wanted to share it with you because I wanted you to see that when God shows up, you don't get to predict what happens. And what I'm praying in my own personal life, ongoing and for a long time, is that God will show up in our lives. And I'm praying for the courage to not care what that looks like, but just ride that wave. Does that sound good to you? So I think repentance is key to this. And I'm, my prayer is that God will redefine it for you before we leave. And you will capture a real meaning for it and a real passion for it in your own life. That you will see how important this part is and that by missing it, it's why we endure so much of the sadness that we do in our lives. Because repentance is a sad word for a really quote-unquote happy world. It's, it's really, to me, I don't know if you want to call it entertaining or disgusting. I don't know. Sometimes I like to get on social media just because I need a laugh. All the idiots are on there. He can't say idiot in church. I'm sorry. The morons, they're on there. You know, they, they post these crazy things that don't make sense. If you can dream it, you can be it. And there'll be some kind of cool picture with kittens or something. Well, I want to be a unicorn, a skinny one. <laughs> it's just kind of stupid. And I know, you know, people who put that stuff up, they're just, they need some happiness in their life. I get that. I'm not criticizing the person. I'm just like, come on, man, don't buy into all of this fake happy. That's what I'm talking about. We live in a world that's just all about being fake happy. Do you remember a few years ago when Charlie Sheen got that interview in 2020? Winning. Remember that? All the memes. We're winning. I want to quote him. He says, it's perfect. It's awesome. Every day it's just filled with just wins. All we do is put wins in the record books. We win so radically. It's scary. I dropped a line there because I didn't want you to have an image, okay? The funny thing is he had just lost a multi-million dollar contract. He had just gotten fired from his job. So apparently he had decided that losing was winning. By the way, he started an amazing winning streak thereafter, going on crusades and talks and everything that no one would come to, okay? So that tiger's blood didn't go very far, but hey, that's, that's me. My point is simply this. We live in a world that's decided to be happy by ignoring its sadness, and that will not work. You will never be happy by ignoring your pain and sadness, God gave us a way to let it go. I'm sorry about the let it go references, okay? God gave us a way 
to release it. Okay, some of you are singing it in your head right now. <laughs> so I want us today to learn how to embrace, to embrace happiness through the sadness of repentance. I think we need to accept that there is sadness in life and stop trying to pretend like there's not. We're trying to bury sadness, and it's not helping. Jeremiah said, the harvest is finished, the summer is gone, and the people cry, yet we are not saved. Repentance is the way that God addresses our brokenness and helps us address our brokenness. So the main thing I want to accomplish today is that we are not bound by, that we're set free and able to embrace repentance for what it is. It's actually two things. Repentance first is not God wanting you to feel bad. And I think that's probably what a lot of us think about when we think about God and think about the word repentance and even think about religion. We think God just kind of wants us to live in a, a general misery. And we've seen a lot of Christians who've displayed that. You know, I just love the Lord. And if they smiled, their face would break. <laughs> By the way, on the talent, crazy, uh, funny argument, I would like to volunteer for crazy if I could just volunteer. That would, I, will, I will wear that mantle since I'm really not going to have a choice when it's all done anyway. I might as well just embrace the thing. God doesn't want you to be miserable. He doesn't want you to be, just be unhappy. And repentance involves two, two things. Remorse and return. Remorse and return. We know all about remorse, but we know very little about return. There's an amazing passage in Acts. Uh, Peter has just performed a miracle. It's the story where the lame beggar asked them for some money, and Peter and uh, John were there, and, and they said, well, we don't have any money. Silver and gold have I none, but what I've got I'll give to you, and shazam! And that's in the Greek. He said, Shazam. Uh, <clears throat> just kidding. So <laughs> the guy got up and started to walk. Now what happened when he started to walk, it was a notable miracle. Everybody knows something different was going on. And a crowd gathered. This is happening in Jerusalem. A crowd is gathered. And so Peter takes this as an opportunity to nail them to the wall. He does. He calls them out on rejecting the Christ and having him crucified, having him crucified. And so, you, I mean, this, the scared Peter of the night of Christ's crucifixion is gone, burned away in the power of the Holy Spirit. And now this day he stands, God gives him a notable miracle, and he uses it as an opportunity to address the people's sadness. Sometimes we're sad and we're remorseful and we hurt within over things that we refuse to acknowledge or we're unwilling to admit. And this group of people had been part of kicking Jesus Christ, God, out of the world. And so Peter calls them on the rug about it, and then he offers them this invitation in Acts 3.19. Repent of your sins. Notice these phrases. Repent of your sins. Turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. And then times of refreshment will come for the presence of the Lord, and he will again send you Jesus, the appointed Messiah. Okay, Jesus had come. They had kicked him out, killed him, sent him away. Now they are just a, the lost sheep of Israel in Jerusalem trying to make life fit. And now Peter stands up and says, hey, it's not going to work. You're not going to fix this. So you need to repent of it, deal with the remorse, 
You need to turn to God. Turn around. Change what you're doing. When you do that, then your sins are going to be wiped away. It's going to be reconciled. And then refreshment will come from the Lord. You see those four things that happen. God refreshes. This is the process by which God heals us. This is how God overcomes our brokenness and restores us to a place of real happiness. It, it, should be, it should help us to see that the pathway to being truly happy is through sadness. Through sadness. We'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, I'm sure it's coming up in my notes in just a second, okay? But God wants us. He doesn't just want us to say things. He doesn't just want religious activity out of us. He doesn't just want us to go to church and hang out with churchy people. God wants us to change, to do things. He says this. I got to, oh, I'm going to read off the screen. The print's too small on this little thing. I don't know. I need a bigger phone. Anyway, I guess I could just use this thing as my phone. That would be good. That's the next iPhone right there. iPhone XZ. All right. God says through Joel, don't tear your clothing in your grief, but tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He is eager to relent and not punish. Man, we get stuck in remorse. We get stuck in the sadness. Henry Cloud calls it, in his explanation of the grief cycle, I love it. He talks about how you have a reality. The reality could be a lost loved one, obviously. That's when we most commonly think about grief. But it could, be any, it could be anything we've lost or anything we expected and we didn't receive. It could be a, a college you didn't get into, a relationship that bro- ended. It could be an expectation you had for one of your kids. It could be all kinds of things. There are so many griefs in our lives. So there's these realities start. And then we enter, we start entering the grief cycle. And you may not have heard it referred to in this way, but we move from the reality into the protest. I don't like it. I hate it. I don't want this in my life. That's the protest phase. That's where we get angry. But then we go through the protest phase, and then at different points in the protest phase, we kind of despair. And we move into the season of emptiness. So we go, so reality, protest, emptiness. Now there's a fourth stage that you cannot get to unless you're willing to voluntarily walk through the sadness. And that's why many people are stuck. Because what happens is the bad thing happens. I protest, I despair. I protest again. I despair. I protest. I despair. And we spin our wheels. We never willingly, voluntarily walk through the sadness. Henry Cloud says grief is the only pain by which we voluntarily enter that heals all other pains. This is why the message of repentance is so critical because it is the walk through the remorse and the sadness. It is how we move from protest to despair, back into protest, and eventually through despair into the fourth stage of grief, which you could call resurrection, rebirth, new expectation. 
Whatever grief you're in, just a little pastoral coaching right here. If you're in a season of grief in your life, and they are common, it's likely that you are. If you're in a season of grief in your life, one, grief takes time. There ain't no fast way through, okay? Grief takes time. Let it take time. The world is a microwave, and we want everything instantly, and we want to get over stuff fast, and that's a load of hooey. God made us to be people who love, and people who love need time to grieve things that are lost. So we move through grief. We don't put a time limit on it, but there will come a day if you will willingly walk through the sadness that you will be reborn. You will be ready for the next thing. You remember that Old Testament story about Joseph who had the dreams? And he told his dad, and you know, he saw that everyone was bowing down to him in the dreams, and I won't go into the detail. But all I know is that his dream died in a well attacked by his brothers and beaten, and died further when he awoke in slavery within a few days. His dream died, and through that process of losing his dream, God prepared him to live his dream. Does that make sense? And so, guys, you may be in a season of grief, and it may be the hardest thing you've ever had to endure. I just want you to know that you are probably being prepared for your dream, for God's dream for you, to be more accurate. Does that make sense? If you can dream it, you can be it. If God can dream it, he can make you it. Is that a better way? God has big dreams, by the way. So, this repentance issue is a way to get out of that remorse we get stuck in, and it has a look to it. First of all, repentance is a new mind. It's a new way of thinking. And you're probably fairly familiar with Paul's words in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. He says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you'll learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. A new mind is what repentance says. It changes the way you think. It comes from that, uh, excuse me, the Greek word metanoia, and it means to change your mind in a way that leads to change behavior. Now this is important because we, we have a very worldly look at our problems in life. And, and we encounter things, and one of the things that keeps us stuck in remorse, excuse me, one of the things that keeps us stuck in remorse is that we look at the things that are dragging us down as annoyances and inconveniences, and we grieve because of the bad things that happened or how we failed or how we've let ourselves down. Typically, we end up in something the Bible calls worldly sorrow, and it's very performance-based stuff. It means that we feel like we're not accomplishing, that we could do better, and all those kinds of things. Now, Paul talks about another kind of sorrow and says, 2 Corinthians 7.10. He says the kind of sorrow that God wants us to experience. God wants us to experience a sorrow. Well, that can really rattle your faith right there. God wants you to experience a sorrow. And, and it leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But there's a worldly sorrow which lacks repentance and results in spiritual death. The difference is that of perspective. Worldly sorrow looks at all that's lost here. Heavenly sorrow, godly sorrow, looks at all that's lost there. Uh, to clarify, God designed you for an amazing and glorious relationship with Him, the divine. He, he wants you to experience that relationship. 
We fail, we sin, caught up in addictions, whatever kinds of things that are beating us up today. And we grieve the fact that we failed. We're hurt over the fact that we've lost whatever, money, time, possessions, relationships, those kinds of things. God grieves over the loss of our relationship with him. He grieves over the fact that we had all this glory available to us that we did not live within. He grieves over the fact that he wanted to do everything with us and be a co-laborer with us, and we did it on our own. That's what God grieves. So it may seem like a subtle change in perspective to you, but it's, it's all the world and the difference between resolving the remorse and the pain and the sorrow is seeing what is lost from the divine perspective, rather from the earthly's perspective. So we've got to let God change our mind about those kinds of things. Now, Paul writes another thing in Philippians that's really helpful. He says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. Now think about this verse for a second, guys. Jesus was God. He was God. But he, didn't, he did not hang on to the privileges of being God. He let them go. So God the Son, somehow maintaining the essence of God, released the privileges of God. I don't understand it either, but he did it, okay? That's, the Bible says that I believe it. I don't have to understand it. And so Jesus did this. But think about this. He stepped out of the control seat of his life and let the Father have control. And Paul tells us that is the mind of Christ. When I'm talking about repentance giving you a new mind, it's doing the same thing Jesus did. You're putting God on the throne of your life. You have a new mind about that. You're no longer, God is my co-pilot and we're having fun. We're like, God's driving and he's scary. I love it. I have a friend, uh, Tim Hickman, comes through every so often. He says, the life of faith is, is life on the ragged edge of disaster. <laughs> I'm like, wow, Tim. <laughs> I, almost thou persuadest me to run away. But anyway, so my point is, is that a change of mind in which God calls for puts God on the throne. I'm no longer God to me. This is important. <laughs> so repentance is also a new direction. It isn't just the fact that I change the way I think about me and about my sin and about my failures and my weaknesses, but it also actually changes the direction and the perspective and the trajectory of my life. When I repent, things change. So the word I talked about a while ago, metanoia, metanoia, yeah, my Greek's not great. It's also a military term. Some of you guys are in the military or you, you enjoyed marching there for a while, right? I mean, because that's what everyone loves to, anyway, never mind. So, and then some guy with a lot of power and a really loud voice would yell out, about face. Same word that the Roman army used, or the word that the Roman army used to accomplish the same task was metanoia, about face. And so, repentance is turning around, it's... It's, it's changing your course. It's moving up. In fact, the word repent, the word repart means to turn, and the pent part, like penthouse, is higher. To turn higher. Good, huh? 
Someone else wrote thought that up, and that's smarter than me. But the point is simply this. When we repent, we change our direction in our life. What does that mean? Well, it's a lot more than words. And I think, I th- I think uh, Christianity today, I think it's very popular to divorce actions from obedience, to separate how I act from what I believe. And so there's this, this growing... Um, license, I guess, that kind of has the idea that as long as I believe, whatever I do is all covered by the blood. Okay, and I don't disagree with that simple reality. Whatever you do is covered by the blood. However, I do disagree with this. Repentance, or I disagree in the point that God's Word says that repentance changes the way I live. So if I begin to reveal some things or realize some things in my life that are out of whack, that are hurting my family or hurting my life, then something has to change. Revelation puts it this way. It says, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. You probably remember this verse. But Jesus, and this is Jesus speaking, by the way, goes on and says, therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Do you see that Jesus expects a change in activity? This is important. Repentance isn't just about going down and getting prayer. I think getting prayer is awesome. I think think we need it. I think we need people to pray for us to get us on the right track. But repentance is actually changing your life. It's actually taking different steps. Maybe, let me me make this practical. Let me meddle a little bit. Is it okay if I meddle? Never mind, I'm ignoring you at this point. (laughs) You know, maybe you're in a habit at home, you know, and, and, and you're the one who, you're the night owl. And there's nothing wrong with being a night owl. God loves night owls. Jesus was a night owl. I'm not a night owl, and Jesus loves me too. But, and, and so your family, your wife, your husband, whatever, they go to bed without you, and you sit up, and you, you watch that TV for a while. Maybe you're a stage of life that that's okay, but maybe your marriage really is in a place where it's not okay. Here's what repentance looks like. Repentance says, you know what? This really isn't working for my family. By the way, let me just throw this out for free. When you made a vow to love someone for the rest of their life, you were making a vow to put their needs above your own at times, especially when there are crises going on. And so maybe it means this is what repentance looks like. Hey, God, this, I realize this isn't working for my family, so I'm going to change this. Maybe you're using medications your doctor gave you, and you realize you can't control them. And, and they're moving into your life, and they're beginning to take over your life. Here's what repentance looks like. You say, hey, doc, stop writing me that prescription, and I need some help. And you make a change. You take an action, a step. Does that make sense? You have an addiction in your life. You don't just sit there and suffer by yourself. God did not design you and make you to overcome your problems with only your strength. I know, the world says the opposite. you got to get up every morning, look in the mirror, and ignite your inner warrior. (laughs) I'm sorry, I didn't mean to spit on anybody. Go ahead, set your warrior on fire, but it's not going to help, all right? Instead... Take some steps in life, depend upon God, and make some changes. Some people call it radical obedience, but the Bible just calls it obedience. And you can say you follow Jesus and you love Jesus, okay? And I'm not, I'm not trying to pick on you or poke at you. But if you really love Jesus, then you do what he says. Otherwise, your relationship's a sham, okay? Not to insult you, but hey, if it takes a little bit of a gib smack to wake up, then wake up. 
Following Jesus is about obeying him. And that's what repentance looks like. It changes things. Your actions change. And if there's true repentance in your life, then you take steps, actual steps. And that's what happened in the first great awakening. And that's what will happen in us as we do it. It's also, though, it's a new mind, a new direction. But above all, it's a new relationship. I know, we use the word relationship in church so much that we've kind of gotten used to it. Like, I know, yes, it's not religion, it's relationship, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just trying to make lunch. Well, that ain't going to happen. Get over it. (laughs) All the way through the Bible, all the way through God's Word, it's always been relationship. I know the Old Testament freaks some of you out because you're like, the God in the Old Testament, God knew they're not the same. Oh, they are. And if you look closely, you will see that God sought a relationship with Adam and Eve. God sought a relationship with Cain and Abel. God went after a relationship with Abraham, with Moses, with Joseph, with all of those guys. God was not just in heaven going, do this or suffer. He was pursuing people. And that's why he sent his son to pursue us. God wants a relationship with you. Uh, And I know some of you are like, I think he's pretty annoyed with me. You might be annoyed with you, but God likes you. He paid the price to like you. He laid down his own life that he might have the power to forgive you and befriend you. Repentance is about restoring a relationship. I think one of the very best stories is Luke 15. The prodigal son. I love the story. I reference it all the time. It's a story of a son who was a jerk. I mean, he basically goes to his dad and says, Dad, you are dead to me, so let me have my inheritance now. That's basically what he says to him. And so you can see that that's like an absurd relationship. And and even a, a, a stranger turn of events, the father, who should have just like smacked him down, that would have been cool. I don't know how that would have worked in Jesus' teaching, but still, it would have been a cool part of the story. The father, no, I'm sorry, this is Michael just being Michael. I told you there was a crazy one. So good. So the father, in this strange turn of events, says, okay. Do you have any idea how odd, bizarre, strange this story is? We're so used to hearing it, we take it for granted. And this son is like, you're dead to me, so you might as well give me my inheritance. And the father says, okay. And then what happens is exactly what any parent of of rebellious children would expect to happen. He takes the money, he parties hard until the money's gone, and all of his friends he had when he had money find out he has no money, they abandon him, and now he's alone, stepped forward into homelessness. Now he's sleeping in pig pens, trying to, to feed pigs to scrape up enough food to eat so he cannot die. This is his story. And one day he's in the pig pen and he realizes, this stinks. (laughs) Might not have made the best call there. Started reviewing his life and remembers, I told my dad, you're dead to me. How do you recover from that? And the Bible says in Luke 15, 17, when he finally came to his senses... And every parent in the room should amen that verse because we've got kids that we're praying that they will come to their senses about things, you know? Not that they're stupid. They just don't know yet. And so we pray. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, 
And there's the beginning of repentance. When I remember, I have home. That there is no addiction, there is no sin, there is no failure, there is no distance, there is nothing that has happened in any life in this room that negates the reality that you have a home. Amen? You can't break that. You can't reject that. You just have to come to your senses one day and realize at home. So the young man works through his options, realizes he has a home, goes home. So he returned to his father. Ah, let me stop just for a second. The father in Jesus' story is not me. Okay. Because I would have had a pretty good lecture in t- ready. I'm just saying. I would not have said, I told you so, with the words, I told you so. But I would have said, I told you so for a long time. Because <laughs> dads are good at lectures. Not as good as moms, but they're good. <laughs> so the son returns home and listen to the story. And while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, the father ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. The father did not need words. The father did not need an I'm sorry. He did not need those words that we think are so important. We want to get the prayers just right. And we want to do the right religious things. And the father embraced and loved his son without a word. But the son was just like us. He had rehearsed his words. And I love this next verse because the son says to him, (coughs) the son the father's hugging him, embracing him, crying on him. They're snotting on each other. It's a beautiful moment, worthy of a Jane Austen movie, right? <laughs> I don't really know if it is or not. I just said that. The, fun, the son says, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. That's true. That's true, man. Because he didn't just leave. He burned his bridges when he left. You understand that, right? And what the son was absolutely correct, what he said. And the father completely did not care. Because the next verse goes on to say, This son of mine was dead. And he's now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So let's party. That's right. The father likes to party. Write that one down. (laughs) See, repentance is about coming home. It's about realizing there are things in life that are difficult, that are challenging, that are not working. And it's about returning to the home that you have with your father God. I realize all the struggles that may present to you to even consider God as a father. But he's the father you never had, even if you had a good father. He's the father who loves you no matter what and cares about you. He's the father who wants to do this life with you 
And that's what repentance is about. Repentance is about stopping doing it by yourself. Because that's, that's the illusion the world is throwing at you all the time, man. you got to do this. If it is to be, it's up to me. There's another great meme for your Facebook feed. That's total baloney. It's not true. Why rely on my limited weakness when I can live my life from his complete, unstoppable, impossible power? He's not worried about your weaknesses. He's not worried about your failures. He's not worried about your performance. All he wants from you is to come home. Leave your sins, your addictions, and everything else with the pigs. That's, that's where they belong, in the pig pen. I guess he had to go through the pig pen, but I guess he didn't have to either if he could have just not been a jerk to start with, but that's another sermon problem. But he left all of that there, and he came home. And the Bible says this about repentance, and this is a verse that I will probably be talking about the rest of my life because I, I don't quite get it. I don't. Romans 2, 4, Paul writes, it says, Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that His kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? Repentance is about God being kind to us, giving us a way out of our grief, setting us free from our pain, but you can't do it by ignoring it. You can't just keep burying it. You can't just hang out in that pig pen, eating with the hogs, and just laying there feeling miserable and sorry for yourself and pretending to be happy because that's what the world's doing. They're covered in mud, wallowing with the pigs going, winning! <laughs> and your father says, come home. Just admit this stinks. Admit bondage to whatever it is is awful. Admit the pain happened, the brokenness, the lost relationship, the death. Just, just admit it. Accept the reality. Go get mad. Get sad. Get mad and sad until you can finally move into life. Ready for something else. Ready for God's dreams. With Him in the seat. And me not in control. I am not good in control. And you aren't either. So repentance moves us into some different ways of looking at ourselves. I'm just going to jump into those right quick. And Repentance basically gives us a new attitude towards sin. I'm using sin as a blanket word for everything that's wrong, broken, falls short, fails, whatever. It is a new attitude toward that. That stuff in your life does not have to destroy you. It doesn't have to shackle you. It doesn't have to burden you. And it doesn't have to slow you down. You just realize it's just the pig pen. All i got to do is go home. So repentance is a new attitude about sin. And it's a new attitude about self. I do not deserve, I do not need to be on the throne of my life. The last thing God needs to be in my car is the co-pilot. I need him. I need to have a mind like Christ that does not hold on to my own divinity in my life. Does that make sense? I got to let that go. 
And repentance is just simply coming home. There is a place for you. You do not have to live this aloneness that you have gotten used to. You don't have to feel like that you are alone in any stage of your life, whether it's your marriage. Many people feel that. They're in a marriage and still feel alone. Some of you are single. You've had some broken relationships, and you're under the weight of this aloneness. This is not what God has for you. God wants you to come home. He wants you to be in relationship with him. He'll take care of the others. Would you bow your heads for a moment? I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. Rachel, I'm handing the slides to you. Your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed right now. I don't know your specific grief. I do know how God works, though. And he has a way of prying at things when we listen to sermons and music and worship and testimony. And he has a way of prying at things and bringing them to the surface of our lives. You probably heard me talk a little bit about grief and you thought about your reality that you absolutely hate. God didn't tell us to love things that were awful. He, he did teach us to love people that were awful, but not things and events. And so you are probably, many of you are in this, you're stuck in some stage of life and you can't move forward. You can't experience freedom. You're probably under a weight of guilt. Probably feel this shame and guilt and you don't even know what to do with it and you keep telling yourself why, reasons why you should feel that way and they're just making you feel bad. They're not setting you free. So here's what I'm encouraging you to do. I'm encouraging you into God's movement of repentance, which is simply moving from the reality through your protest and your dislike and your anger into your sadness and through that into new life. That is the journey home. Letting go of the pig pen. For all that young man's skill and ability, the best he could do with his life was pigs. One day he said, you know what? My dad can do better. That's where you are right now. We're going to sing here in just a second, right after I pray. While we're singing, you can worship. There are people that are going to be on my right-hand side, your left, that are going to be ready to pray with folks. If you need someone to hold you up in prayer, you don't have to tell us anything about what you're struggling with. But if we can help, myself, the other pastor, Michael, or Pastor Steve, after he's done leading worship, or many of our leadership, then we're here to do that. So let's pray. Father, you know the hearts, you know the brokenness, the pain, the loss, you know it all. I ask you, Lord, today that nobody leaves with it on their backs. That everybody walks out of here free. That's what I'm asking you to do. I know it's a big prayer. Actually, I know it's impossible. It's a good thing I serve a God who can do anything. I pray, Lord, you'd move in your people and release them. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand. Amen.